You are listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com. The death of Duncan, because I'm kind of curious to know. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another. Um, I found it. Oh, oh, I was just going to say that's another scene where you have a character lie prone and be penetrated. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's um in Duncan's cloth of gold tent, which is lit like with flickering lights, sort of similar to the way that um, Lady Macbeth's chapel. Mm. is shots. So you have those two scenes almost back-to-back where you have, like, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth plotting and having sex, and then Macbeth goes out the tent, uh, mm. sees sees mm. the dagger there before his eyes, and then... Yeah. Yeah. I, stabs, penetrates Duncan repeatedly. But, and it's cut in an interesting way because it's... I think it even, like, cuts between... Him and like to Lady Macbeth praying and with something else going on too. And it's very disjointed and he becomes like, it feels like the way that it's cut is also cut to make you feel like he's becoming disconnected from reality. And he just mm-hmm. sort of just starts like stabbing away like crazy. Like it becomes a big bloodbath. I think they might even cut out the sound and it's this huge, like really bloody massacre. And he's just totally unaware of it and totally just numb to it and out of it. And then he lies down next to Duncan, which is kind of weird. And then he just right. sits next to him. In the refractory period. Yeah. which mm-hmm. <laughs> I, we, so the, I mean, then, it's there. <laughs> not not there, at least. Yeah. And then they get... And then Malcolm comes in, and that's another thing where they've gone pretty, like, a big departure from the text, because first of all, Malcolm isn't supposed to come in. And then Macbeth talks to Malcolm and basically says, I killed your father, and Malcolm is crying, Mm -hmm. which is funny, because in the text, Malcolm basically literally says, I can't, I won't be able to cry at my dad's funeral, everyone will know I don't care, I better run away. Yeah. I, I found that that was my least favorite part of the film because I was very confused by it. It took, it, again, this was another moment that took me out of the film and I go, oh wait, this isn't the text. This isn't at all on the text. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and now you're putting a brand new meaning on this moment. Yeah. Which kind of wasn't there in the first place. Kind of reminiscent of The Lion King, actually. How so? How so? Well, after... You mean modern after, Hamlet? Oh, I think The Lion King's a lot more like Macbeth than it is like Hamlet, actually. Oh, interesting. Are you okay. Next one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't go... Well, maybe I could go into that. But, um... 
But no, I'll just I'll just explain the comparison. Uh, mm-hmm. So after Scar arranges for Mufasa's death by wildebeest, you mm-hmm. see, uh, like Simba comes across the body, and then Scar comes in and he's like, "This is your fault. Flee, go far away, never return." Similarly, Macbeth and or uh, Malcolm enters the tent where his father is laid out dead, and then goes into exile. Later returns in a fiery blaze of golds and reds and yeah. uh, sets violence to right in a way, kind of. Although, well, again, that's a lot more passive, which we can get to later. No, but I think that that's, that's an accurate reading of the film, and one of the ways the film has edited the text in ways to totally change its meaning, because in the text, Malcolm is not this saintly figure who deserves to be king and is like so great and how dare Macbeth take it away from him like first of all when his father dies his first reaction is oh shit I'm not gonna be able to cry at his funeral people will know I don't really love him I guess I better run away because they'll think that if I can't cry then I must be responsible then he runs away and people are like oh maybe he's responsible and then when Macduff, Macduff goes to find him after Macduff is like I'm so grossed out by Macbeth He goes to find them, and they're preparing their English armies, and Malcolm is like, Macduff, you don't understand. I need a lot of women. I just have insatiable an insatiable sexual appetite. And Mm -hmm. Macduff is like, it's cool. We'll find you women. Nobody has Mm -hmm. to know. We'll find you women. We can do that. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm really, really lecherous. And Macduff is like, it's cool. You're still better than Macbeth. Like, there's, like, Malcolm is not this lovely person. Yeah. Which, uh, to return to our discussion of the Jacobian theater. Yes. Well, uh, there's a lot of speculation that this play was written by, well, no, there's not speculation that this play was written by Shakespeare. We know that. That's what my sentence is about to suggest. But no. So we know Shakespeare wrote this play. We know Shakespeare wrote this play during the King's, the King's men period as opposed to Lord Chamberlain's men. So there's speculation that one of the political motives of this play possibly was to legitimize James's reign in England because you have the suggestion that Banquo and his descendants are the fated rightful rulers. Mm. James I, of course, traces his ancestry back to this legendary thane named Banquo. Mm. So I think um, that's another way, um, like, Banquo is the more righteous victim in all of this in the play mm-hmm. and film as opposed to Malcolm. Yes. And I think who Banquo- we aren't very sympathetic with at all. We just know like he's yeah, going to come back definitely. in public Beth because of cycles. When yeah. Banquo also comes off in a much more realistic way, sort of like unambiguously good that he's got yes. this close friendship with Macbeth. He's got, he loves his son and comes home from war and he greets his son with a big hug and he's always, doing stuff with his son and hanging out with his son. He seems to really love him. And even when Macbeth is like planning to kill him and goes to see Banquo and is like, where are you going to be? Just so I can make sure I can send the murderers to the right place. Just when are you going to be there and where are you going to be there? And even when Banquo has kind of figured out, oh, I guess he's going to try and kill me, that like they hug and Macbeth is like genuinely happy to hug him, even though he's about to have him killed. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And Um, then, and then little Arya Stark gets away. Right. <laughs> not to, oh, well, there I go again, comparing. But, but it's I think not, that... Not, not there. But I, the, it's kind yeah. of interesting about the Jacobian context, because the 
other thing that is cited as like an important, because the play was written in 1606 and 1605 was the gunpowder plot, which was basically when they tried to kill like every noble in government. Like it was going to blow up parliament basically, which would have killed like a lot of rich noble people. And yeah, in some ways, let's invite a Spaniard to come be king. Yeah. Right. But then in some ways, that's sort of like what happens in Macbeth is like all of the yeah. nobles get blown up and it ends up yeah. with Banquo's presumably Fleance is going to triumph because he's walking off into the red. He's the last one we see walking off into the blood red sunset distance, whatever. Yeah. Having yeah, the, killed the man with no the, name with a name. Duncan. Actually, no, he doesn't have a name in this movie. We know who he is. Yeah. But he's the he's the son with no name. Very uh Western. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, That's and me. actually that was totally something. left field. No, no, I don't think you are actually, because Justin uh Brazil was talking about how he he's this film a little bit like a Western. Oh. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, so I'm not surprised that you brought that up. I mean Certainly, the weather elements and the outdoor elements kind of suggest that, and also this kind of the male camaraderie in the in the film kind of suggests that as well. And the lots of really lots of galloping through the wilderness yeah. on horseback, yeah, side by yeah, side, and yeah. And the, the the long shots of the of the setting, and yeah, so that that definitely plays in, into this. Interesting, yeah. Well, even Macbeth's palace is not a palace it's like no. a good church and then and then duncan stays in a tent whereas it's in the text it's i mean it, it's a mansion basically and duncan shows up and is like isn't this a nice mansion isn't this a nice place to stay i bet this is a great place to stay like no murdering right. goes on here yeah <laughs> yeah which they cut they cut that scene no yeah didn't isn't like there's something in there though probably they do they eat together? Yeah, there's. They have a. I want to say they eat together. There's like a bank. There's another banquet in another tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's this actually interesting scene where you have like Duncan in the middle, Malcolm on one side, Macbeth on the other side, and Banquo like just off camera, and then he eventually comes in, and this is where Duncan announces that Malcolm's going to be his his um, heir, and. Macbeth has a inner monologue that we hear where he's like, oh. Oh, right. Well, that's going to be a problem for me. Yeah. Yeah, setting up. And it's interesting because we've talked about how, like, this film is sort of set in a period before institutions. So mm-hmm. you're seeing Duncan attempt to set up a, a successive monarchy. Well, where it's it kind seems of like before. To do it, it seems- that way. Because he's doing it in Macbeth's house. He's like in Macbeth's house as a guest with Macbeth next to him. He's like, oh, by the way, you're not going to be king. Well, right, right. the thing is, he Did does he say- give him saying of corridor. Yeah, so, yeah. I, mean, I think he, yeah. he kind of. Yeah. He's made. He's oh, made. He's confirmed. He's confirmed Macbeth's status as a leader of as a leader of men in war, mm-hmm. and sort of setting up a state as separate from that violent system. Mm. Which is, which is interesting. That's one of the things I thought about. Right. Because of course, later on, Macbeth seizes it back, but he doesn't have an heir to pass it on to. So he's sort of, that's one of the reasons why he's kind of alone in this new world once he's at the top. When you don't see Duncan and Malcolm in battle either, they're not like 
Henry V leading his troops into battle or Coriolanus like killing everyone, everyone by himself. They're, they're not really on the battlefield at all. And even when Macbeth becomes king, that's when he stops doing his own murdering and he just sends somebody else to kill. Yeah, the king is not an active leader, which is one reason why the king seems to be like a cyclical victim of violence. Yeah. Yes. Well, the king has literally nothing to do. There's no policy that they have to deal with or any kind of, you know, tax collection or kingly duties. They just become king and sit around in finery doing nothing. Yeah. yeah. Worrying oh. about being usurped. And we talked about uh, uh, Macbeth welcoming Duncan at a banquet. I want to circle back to that, if that's okay. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. of course, um, in that sort of feudal, pre-feudal society, like, hospitality rules and rituals of welcome, like, sort of are one of the basis, bases of society. So you see, Macbeth welcomes Duncan. Duncan sort of, in a way, you mentioned, like, he implicitly is insulting or rejecting Macbeth. So, like, part of the treachery... The way here, it's staged in the film, I should say, because it's not... Right. Quite All of this is, like, yeah. in reference to Curzel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of building this semi-barbaric world that we're watching and witnessing. So you see, like, that welcome, Macbeth might feel insulted that his, his welcome has been greeted with, like, oh, well, Malcolm is going to be king. But then later on, of course, so so you have a guest-host relationship between Duncan and Macbeth. And mm-hmm. by, like, rules of honor, like, guests and hosts don't kill each other. But then later on, of course, Macbeth commits the murder in Duncan's tent where mm. Duncan is the host and Macbeth is an unwanted guest, which again goes mm. back to that penetrative imagery. Mm. Macbeth is an uninvited guest committing violence. When there's also something similar to that for when Banquo's ghost shows up at the banquet is that, because in the text he's supposed he's sitting in Macbeth's seat, which is why Macbeth doesn't yeah. sit down and Macbeth freaks out about it. But yeah. in the film, he's sitting at one of the tables as like a regular old guest while they're talking about how rude of him to not have shown up. That's not like him. That's not very nice. And then he's yeah. showing up there and then he's there. His ghost is there staring him down with a lot of judgment, understandably. And Macbeth because he should be at the right hand and he's not. Right. No. He has not been invited. Right. So he's not even at the main table. Uh, Which again, all of these things are like extra or external to um, Shakespeare's play that they're working with. But I think it's a very interesting way of telling the story. Well, but I think these these things anyway, at least they're not these, what we're talking about with the guest stuff is not actively working against the text. To me, that's taking the text and then making it visible like that's what you're yeah. that's what you yeah. should do when you're directing it is to support the text with something that illuminates the text and then ideally you should also say the text in ways that it has meaning and people can leave the theater quoting Macbeth which I feel like you cannot do from this film no. um, even though there's so many good quotable lines it's just yeah. not designed for that this production no. Um, no it's definitely more kind of the director trying to make a visual representation of the text rather than the text doing the work. Yeah. Or rather no, than the visual being like a way of supporting the text is like in place exactly. of the text. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, going back to that idea of cycles and 
and like the cyclical violence. So, I mean, we are talking about like there's multiple banquets where the who's the host and who's the guest is changing. And then the other thing I think we talked about was that, well, once you become king, you become victim to this sort of cycle of violence where you try and get rid of your heir. So we sort of mentioned earlier that there's a lot of problems with the meter of the text and how it's being spoken by the actors. Yeah. Laura, do you want to? Well, it's, it, they, they give, you know, an actor clues about how to say it. Uh, if the line doesn't finish and it starts with a new character finishing that meter, it means that they speak right after each other. Mm-hmm. Typically speaking, in the meter, if there's less syllables as well, it indicates a pause. Right. So, for example, if there's a soliloquy and there's the meter is shortened at the end, it indicates there's a pause before the other character starts speaking. Now, with this, there's pauses all over the place. There is uh, characters not finishing each other's meter. The witches, for example, spoke not in rhythm at all. Uh, spoke very naturalistically, which didn't, which kind of made them flat, actually, because mm-hmm. it, it made them feel like they were ghosts rather than witches, because mm-hmm. they just would say these lines kind of emptily, and then there'd be a long pause, and then the other would continue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so for me, they weren't, they weren't speaking the text properly. Did you find, aside from it not sounding right, did you find anything else really, like, reasons why you didn't like it? Well, it wasn't scary. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that's a huge thing, right? Yeah. I mean, they kind of, I think I spoke about this earlier, they seem more like gypsies mm-hmm. or like fortune tellers rather than scary witches. Right. I mean, they that, they don't have to look like a witch to be scary. You no. Know? They, yeah. they just have to evoke the meter and they have mm-hmm. to evoke the... Um, the rhythm of the text and they, and they didn't do that in this, in this film. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I found problematic is because they didn't, because there were problems with the meter throughout, you didn't get a clear sense of the difference between people speaking in iambic pentameter, like nothing was wrong and people speaking in trochaic tetrameter, like the witches. And that yeah. that's sounding, that's sounding off. Or mm-hmm. even, like, Macbeth has all these weird, like, sentences that end in, like, the middle of the line and has, like, weird breaks. Mm-hmm. And you don't feel any of those because they aren't speaking speaking the yeah. meter correctly to begin with. Well, and you're right, like, that they speak in a totally different way than any other characters within the play. And that's to evoke an unsettling feeling mm-hmm. in the characters as well as in the audience, too. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, one thing I found really funny when I was rereading the text to prepare. So one of the first times the witches or the three weird sisters are introduced, like at like right before Macbeth and Banquo are about to meet them. So they they're all together speaking. And so it goes thrice to thine and thrice to mine and thrice again to make up nine. And it almost sounds like a times table or yeah. um like, like a lot talks of about like, it talks about threes, and I know those lines are actually, like, in, in fours, or actually, like, seven and eight, but, like, I just think it's great that it goes it goes up and down, and that's, that line sort of suggests how they're supposed to sound in also, the text of the line. And also, yeah. that there was four weird sisters, including this, like, small child, you know. Yeah. That didn't really work, too. Not, not thrice. Not thrice. 
Flashback. Which is also kind of less scary than having yeah. the three. Yeah. They have for all of those, the, for all those Jungian reasons. But that I think we get you also sort of lose the sense of the witches giving prophecy because, I mean, a lot of the time people refer to, am I pronouncing this right? Trochaic tetrameter? Mm-hmm. Um, as like a nursery rhyme rhythm. And so a lot of the things they say, like, like including things that were cut in this film, like double, double toil and trouble, like it gives you all of these, this sort of sense of a certain kind of rhythm and rhyme and sense of something like from, from an old tale. And if you don't have them speaking it correctly, then you lose that. And I think that part of why they're like the film is all one tone. It's all like gloom is because they don't do that. And because they don't actually, because they've cut a lot of the scenes where there's just regular iambic pentameter without any weird pauses. Like that scene where Duncan shows up at the Macbeth's place and is like, Oh, this is a really nice place. I'm really looking forward to staying at this super nice place where nothing bad happens. And if you cut that, then you don't have that juxtaposition between like people speaking in iambic pentameter and thinking that everything's okay versus people who are speaking in iambic pentameter, but it's like a little broken versus the trochaic tetrameter. And I mean, when we're talking about the imagery of the film using a lot of fire, they could have used the fire within the Weird Sisters a little bit more. I mean, it almost seemed as if they were the fog kind of atmosphere rather than the mm-hmm. flames, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the cauldron that we were talking about, uh, was cut. There was no cauldron or any sort of, you know, association with witches, which also kind of feels like it didn't play into the pagan kind of theme of the film either. Like, yeah. so that for me, they could have played more into it to kind yeah. of expose things that they're actually working towards anyway but they didn't play into those aspects with those sisters. Yeah. I think it's a really good point that you, that they're more, more the fog than the fire because you do see mm-hmm. them disappearing into the fog and they kind of move in and out of the the story, like the fog, like they're just sort of washing away, but they're kind of an incendiary presence, especially in the film, because I know somebody pointed out, I don't know if this is Craig or one of you guys that they actually help save Fleance. The little girl helps save Fleance. Um, and so they're actively taking part in making sure that the prophecy comes true. So they're hardly these not active participants. They definitely have a kind of incendiary role in it. And so it is kind of funny that for a film that everywhere else there's fire, that there's no fire with the witches. Yeah, there's no fire with the witches. The other thing I'm just remembering about costuming with this film, do you guys remember their, they had these markings on their foreheads? Yeah. Which sort of was kind of a pagan mark to me, I think, anyway. I don't, I don't know enough about marking, but it felt that was their mark on how they're otherworldly or it, but again, I felt, felt more in the world of ghost than mm. witch. Yeah. Well, now you're just kind of making me want a Guillermo del Toro Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. He's a great yeah. ghost storyteller. Yeah, totally. Mia Wasakowska <laughs> as Macbeth. Well, didn't he already do it? Isn't that Crimson Peak? People have talk, talked about Jessica Chastain as being kind of a lady. There's a, lot, there's a lot there. 
certainly a lot of blood stain. Yeah, definitely. And suggestive of blood stain. Yeah. Crimson Peak. Do you have thoughts on how the individual actors, like, said their lines of dialogue in the meter? Um, Oh, yeah. I think we talked a little bit about the fact that these actors have never played these characters on stage and don't necessarily have a grasp of the meter. Yeah, I think... I think if you took this outside of the context of Shakespeare, let's just say it was it was a normal adaptation with normal everyday language, you know, forget about the meter, forget about the text for a second. Mm-hmm. Fassbender is a really captivating actor, and so is Mary uh, Mary Cotard. Uh, but, um, but yeah, they just didn't they didn't have a good grasp of the text. So you know, I think they they still through that were trying to evoke what they could out of the characters in the, in the, in the through line that the director wanted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it kind of fell flat because they couldn't be dynamic with the text. Mm-hmm. They couldn't make bold and interesting choices and show different shades of color with the text no. as you were supposed to. The text yeah. is very living. Like, to act it, it's very literally You live it. Mm-hmm. You live every single word and image and pause and and paste of the text. So for me, it was just very flat. It was, they, I didn't see their acting choices because they didn't have a text, like they didn't have the grasp of the text. Mm-hmm. I might disagree. Not that I disagree that they weren't, they weren't uh, speaking metrically because they, they clearly were not doing the verse of the play. But I think the way I've come to think about this film is that, um, they're using using the fragments of the Shakespearean play almost as another tool to evoke tone and mood, more so than like presenting a version of the play. And I I don't know if maybe I just want to love this film because it just was like a wash in so much beauty. But I think well, yeah, yeah. I I I don't know. No, I I do think. Like the way Fassbender delivers a soliloquy is almost more as like an expression of the room that he's in or the mood that the camera is giving than necessarily like an expression of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And that might yeah. be maybe yeah. maybe we're wanting the film to two different things, but yeah, I mean, right. I think that you're right that it, the easiest way to like the film is to divorce it entirely from Shakespeare. You know, like, it's hard, yeah. it's a lot easier to like the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice if you pretend it has nothing to do with Jane Austen, because it's a fun film yeah. as long as you're not looking yeah. for it as an adaptation. Uh, Joe Wright is so uh-huh. great. Uh, this is why I'm never going to see Pan, because I want right. to continue to hold Joe Wright in my heart. It had heart. nothing to do with Jane Austen, but it was, you know, a fun film. If you, especially if you don't remember the book. Um, and <laughs> I think what's happening in the Oh, God, I'm losing my train of thought. Brains. Okay, somebody else say something. I'll remember. Well, I was gonna, I was just going to say there's a lot to celebrate within this film in terms of its visuals, even the way Fassbender is, the soliloquies are filmed. They're broken up into chunks. He's, he's evoking against a wall, you know what I mean? So I felt like it was very much a conversation Fassbender had with the director and how they wanted to evoke this mood of the soliloquy you know, kind of devoid of 
the actual living of the text of it. It was more Mm -hmm. the visuals living for the text. It was, yeah, the visuals were taking uh, place of the text. Uh, yeah, and I think and, and yeah. trying to evoke that mood that way. Yeah, yeah and okay, I, I think in a lot of ways. That. So it was just picking up on what you had said earlier, Laura, is that really that the text really works on you physically when you say it. That like the way you say it, if you say it properly, is going to just the way the text moves affects like how you physically say it and where you breathe and how how you feel. And that's something that I know. Leah Shriver talked really eloquently about on a Charlie Rose episode. In fact, with respect to Macbeth, and I think he was talking about the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow talk, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. And I feel like if that, that you get so much, as you had said before, Laura, that you get so much information about the character and about the scene from the way that the text is written and from, from the meter that if you ignore that, then you're losing so much about so much of the direction about the performance and you are basically just kind of ignoring it's there. Well, here's the thing. If you decide to do it that way, then the visuals have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that sense, the director did make the visuals perfect. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because I think for him, it was more about the visuals than it was about the actor living this character on screen. Yeah. You know what I mean, like it was a less more, it was a less like raw performance per se. Mm-hmm. It was more kind of care, carefully crafted for the images on screen, which, you know, don't get me wrong. I, d- I did like the visuals yeah. and I certainly liked seeing the battle scenes and I certainly liked seeing the killing of Duncan live in action. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was very successful, but it's, it's, you know, it's an actor's play. Yeah. You know, if had we had, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch playing this character, we would have probably seen a fully formed actor playing this character, though. You know what I mean? Benedict Cumberbatch does a lot of acting. He does. He does. Yeah. I mean, he was in. He loves to be an exclamation point. He would have, Macbeth would have had a few physical ticks also. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. But no, but you're right that it would have been like not just this one note morose performance and and I mean I think it's important to also take into account that like they're if you think about like why do we still perform Macbeth it's not because there are fight scenes like there's you know you can write a new play about fight scenes it's because of and it's not even because of just the story because that you know because Shakespeare stole stories he just rewrote other people's stories and did them better um it's you know it's the text and so it seems which to me is like, you can't do Macbeth without properly doing the text. So I sort of felt like they did such a great job with the visuals. It's a shame that they didn't spend half as much time on the text because they could have had a great film. But on the other hand, I do think it's a really good way of, that I think they really make use of the language of cinema in a way most Shakespearean adaptations don't. That, yes. um, you know, even Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, which I think is, is great and is beautifully blocked. And, and I wouldn't say it's not cinematic, it is, but you can tell that it's very much got its roots in the theater. And even, like, his Henry V, which has a lot of close-ups, it too, like, it's not like he's using sound in the same way or imagery in the same way. He's certainly thinking about framing, which Carizal puts a lot of thought into, but not the same sort of level of, like, production design and costumes and sound mixing that is going on in this film. And I think that that's a really good example. Like, that we should be doing that if we're making films of Shakespeare. It shouldn't just be, you know, we we did the play and now we're going to put a camera in front of it. But I also think that 
that's not an excuse to not engage with the text. Thinking along this line, I really would like, I would like to go watch Kurosawa's Throne of Blood to see mm. how that works with it. Because of course, like, that's a, that's an all Japanese text. Mm-hmm. And I think this film, especially in its use of rain and, uh, weather, sort of evokes a sort of, like, a kinship or a descent from, like, Kurosawa's style in places. Yeah. Like, especially the bits that feel like a western or, like, almost, like, a samurai story with no, with, like, less, less of that emphasis on, like, samurai honor, of mm-hmm. course. But, like, the way the duels are shot and the emphasis on the sword killings and, again, the rain. Like, I'm just, I really want to, like, like, I got, I got really interested to see, like, what Kurosawa did with Macbeth, because I know mm-hmm. that film but I think is out there, mean- and I haven't watched it, but, like, thinking about some of the way the fights were shot definitely made me think of some of the scenes in Seven Samurai. But I think that the point about the translation is an interesting one because engaging with sort of translations of plays is something that the Globe Theater in London has been doing a lot of lately. Like they brought in productions from around the world of Shakespeare that were translated. And there's sort of an interesting question of what happens when you translate Shakespeare and is it still Shakespeare or what is it? Because they're not engaging with the same kind of meter, obviously, because it's translated. And so in some ways that's, you could, you could, if you were being more generous than I'm willing to be, say that that's kind of in the tradition of what Kurzel is doing and that he's looking at it, that in some ways he's like translating it, I guess, by getting rid of the meter. And that that is at least in line with certain modern scholarship and interest in how to look at Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe giving him a bit too much credit, but... Right. I think I think I would definitely agree that like structurally and emphatically, it feels a lot more like a nihilistic war film yeah. than a Shakespearean tragedy. Well, I, that makes me that makes me uh find it all the more interesting. Well and that's because like, the... of the way that he's blending yeah. Shakespearean text with like other cinematic influence. Well, to I tell think something that feels new but also very ancient. Because one of the things that happens a lot when people adapt Shakespeare is you have this problem where you have characters who are off stage for a long time and then you have to sort of that's a problem on film. And then where you just like don't see a character and that can end up being a problem with when you're translating it to film. Like one of the things I don't like about Henry the fourth part two in the hollow crown series is that there's a huge section of the play where Henry the fourth is like not on stage, but they can't do that because it's a film, but then you don't feel his absence in his own play the same way as you would if you saw it on stage. Mm-hmm. And the closest that happens to that in this Macbeth is that at the beginning in act five, basically Macbeth, like disappears for a large chunk and there's several scenes in England of the preparations and often when it's played, I guess that's act four and then he comes back in act five and it's often played as though Macbeth has aged a lot. A lot of the time that's how it's Mm -hmm. done on stage. Um, Where in this you really don't get a sense of time that I'm not even sure how long he's been in power, maybe a couple of weeks. Like you don't get a sense that he's been there for a long long time which I don't necessarily think is a problem but you do sort of lose that on the other hand they aren't say doing what Lindsay Turner did with the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet where they aren't moving scenes around like they didn't mm-hmm. think oh we can just move the out out damn spot scene to like the second act because why not mm-hmm. um they are quite they are sticking with Shakespeare even when they're adding in like silent scenes they at least haven't moved around where mm-hmm. the text is spoken 
I mean, when we went to England and we looked at McDuff, I mean, we were going to talk about this as well. I mean, um, was was Fassbender not really there? I mean, pretty much the man playing McDuff, who you got the name of, looked a lot um, like Fassbender. I think it's Sean Harris. Yeah. That is right. Yeah, Sean Harris as McDuff. Yeah. Playing so the- a very similar burly, martial, bearded man yeah. with sadness in his eyes. Yeah, very d- similar builds, very similar face. Yeah, so that that casting choice almost felt like Fassbender never left the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. And it's much short. I mean, I don't think it's wrong to have edited that stuff down because you don't, when you have a film, you don't actually need people talking about how this is an army assembled. You can just Show the army in two scenes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that we talked about uh, just going to the end of the film where, you know, I think we talked a little bit about how Macbeth kind of gives up at the end. But in some ways, with this casting choice, is he kind of giving up on himself, like literally, Mm. you know, metaphorically and figuratively, because Macduff looks so much like him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he finally, you know, he gives up because they also look like each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's another place where the the staging and the framing sort of reminds me of a Western where you have, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think in the, the text of the play, they sort of meet in like a, like in a battle that's already met. But in this film, you almost, it's like the two active members of this scene are like meeting under the high yellow sun squaring off meeting together again there's a lot of um one or both of them end up pinned to the ground beneath the other at various points so like it's Mm -hmm. again that that and it's often kind of silhouetted like you almost don't know who's who Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and like the sky is smoke and yeah because burnham wood is burning yeah and uh that sky is stretched out like Duncan's gold tent and there's all of the red Yeah. Mm-hmm. Red smoke and flame. Which for so, me was was his descent into hell. That was sort of my image oh, to it. The kind that, of pagan Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was Right. I I had that same that same thought that's like we're in the inferno yeah. as it were. The inferno of war. I, I, I just do think it's interesting that again, like we see those same colors and then there's more like statting from above well like, this is very it, it really does feel like at at certain points like we we have seen the same act of violence enacted again and again mm. even um Macduff's wife and children like they go up in flames right and when one Macbeth when he goes to when he's initially going to kill Macduff he does it Macduff is lying down and he's standing over him just like he was with Duncan yeah, just the way the way everything is shot and sort of echoes earlier scenes. It conveys it conveys a mood that I think successfully sustains the film for what it wants to be, which is this kind of rich meditation on violence that repeats. Mm-hmm. But is it is it Shakespeare? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, whether or not this is a successful film, I if this film is to be kind of in the echelon of adaptations of Shakespeare. I don't necessarily think it's a successful 
adaptation. Mm-hmm. If we look at it devoid of the Shakespeare, it's a very successful visual film. Mm-hmm. Um, some beautiful images that will stay with me for a long time. And certainly, if you comprised all most of the silent parts of the films, or the active parts, I should say, not mm-hmm. silent, but, you know, with sound and such, mm-hmm. you would find it to be a very interesting story. But I, I think because they didn't have somebody on set who knew how to work the text, yeah, I think I think that was a real downfall of this film. And certainly this discussion actually helped sway me to that direction. So I think great director, great filmmaker, maybe wrong project. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alex? Okay. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with, with, with Laura. I think in some ways, I think it opened... Ironically, it sort of opened up the text for me in some ways, even just, even if I thought that the choices were wrong, it made me at least think of why they were wrong and made me think about things in the text that I hadn't otherwise, which is sort of what you should ask for in a, in a, I hesitate to say good, but a good Shakespearean production is like you want it to make you think about the text in a different way. And it definitely did that. And even if it was to make me think more thoughtfully about how the, how, what the meter does and how it works and, where you end up in trouble if you don't follow it. And I think I agree with you that I think it's as a work of cinema, like it's just, I think it's, just, it's wonderful as, you know, when it comes to the visuals and the sound and the score, I think it's really engaging and evocative. And I think I just, I'm so sad that they didn't spend the time on the dialogue because I think even if you look at what's going on in the performances, if you don't listen to what they're saying, which you can't really do anyway, because it's all one flat tone. Like, I think there's a lot of good stuff going on. I think Michael Fassbender does, gives a really interesting physical performance where, you know, he, when he gets, when he suddenly feels comfortable as being king because he thinks he's killed off Banquo, you see him like very loose and slouchy at the banquet and, you know, going up and talking to the murderers like no big deal. And he's become, and then when he starts freaking out, you like you can really see it all acting on him in a physical way. And I think you get a lot out of say like the close ups of Banquo as he's, you know, horrified with what's going on with Macbeth or figuring out what's going on. Like I think there's a lot going on in those silent moments of the performance. It's just too bad that they couldn't say the text because I think it's also I think there's a lot that other filmmakers who are making Shakespeare could learn from this, like, you know, do all the things that Kurzel did, except also do the text and you'll have something that is not just a film of a play, but a film where mm-hmm. it's really, truly an adaptation. And it's really, truly a film that's using all of the language of film and not just being like, well, we're basically going to make a film of our stage play. Right. Yeah. So I think I've probably conveyed where, where I land pretty well already. I think I'll just say in summary that like, I, I definitely track with what you guys are saying, and I'm and I'm in sympathy with that desire to see a a really interesting version of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. I think this film is a for me it's a very successful Macbeth in that it tells that sort of brutal, violent Scottish story with a lot of um, atmosphere. Now, not necessarily William Shakespeare's Macbeth, but mm-hmm. for me. Like, the evocation of that story really works. And the visuals and the acting really sells up for me. So, 
that's where I am. I I think it's a super Macbeth. Maybe not a super Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you both for uh, being on the show today. Um, I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast and at The Seventh Row, where I write film and theater reviews and serve as the editor-in-chief. And my guests today are Connor Joel. Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Keep the Muse and at my blog, KeepTheMuse.com. I talk a lot about pie and books. <laughs> and... Laura Ann Harris out of Toronto. Hi, yeah, you can find me at my website, www.lauraannharris.com. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was really great. Yeah, thank you both for all your great ideas. that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. Keep up with the latest episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com.